Welcome to Presidents in Politics. I am one of your hosts, Professor Caleb McGee, and I am joined by my fellow co-host, former Congressman Dennis Ross. And we're starting a brand new podcast about politics in the early presence of the United States. And we're going to start with the founding father, George Washington. Uh, what a joy it's been to study him over the years. And I know Congressman Ross, as we have talked about this podcast, uh, I think he's one of the ones we're most excited about. Uh, he's very fascinating and probably one of the most incredible individuals to be at the right place at the right time for the founding of this country. I mean, his leadership, not only did he exercise such humility, but such brilliance in the way mm-hmm. he, he held himself out. And when you look back at his history, uh, you know, here's a self-made person who, yes. who self-educated, yes. uh, was absolutely incredible, and has left a legacy that I wish more presidents would follow. Yes. I think one of the things he had that you and I talked about this with Teddy Roosevelt is this idea of voluntary hardship, right? Yeah. So he's born into wealth. He's not the blue blood families like the Roosevelts. Correct. But he comes from money. He's a Virginia planting class, right? Over 5,000 acres of tobacco farm. He's got money. But he voluntarily takes a lot of hardship upon himself. He joins the militia as an early man. Uh, He surveys, and and that's not like, you know, if you think about surveying today, the road crew, right, in the orange vest. This is like the backwoods of West Virginia. Trust me, (laughs) I I actually surveyed uh, for six months while I was in college. And it's it's back then we had still had a lot of technology to our advantage, but imagine the rudimentary tools and instruments they used, especially with elevations. Yes, you know you've got to be able to yes. do straight lines and things of that nature in surveying, which was amazing. He's 16 years old yes. as a surveyor. What's really impressive is that at age 11, when his father died, he discontinued all his formal education, That's right. and there after he began teaching himself. Yes, which is is just fun. the motivation. <laughs> that he must have had mm. in order to do that. Yes. And, and again, at age 16, he goes out and becomes a surveyor. Um, and then he is enlisted in the militia. Yes, and which he surveys, of course, the Natural Bridge. Uh, yeah. If you've ever been, of course, in West Virginia, his initials are still there. And then he'll survey much of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I mean, just backwood country, especially That's at this time. work. Yes. And I think it's one of the things that probably crafted him into the politician he'd be later is he wasn't just simply a silver spoon kind of guy, right? Correct. He's got this backwood experience, and now he's got military experience, and it shaped him into the leader that he was. That's why I think men respected him at such level. And one thing that you and I talked about is we don't see a lot of politicians in today's time that voluntarily bring hardship upon themselves to create maybe that character. Um, can, you, can you think of any or, or maybe examples? I think it's I, not in, in modern times. No, I cannot think okay. of any. I, in fact, <laughs> you know, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging any of our leaders that are out there. I'm just suggesting that it's, it's a lot easier to use technology to your advantage yes. to make you look like you had hardships uh, right. and, and instead of actually enduring the hardships to, to what I think chisel you into the leader that you need to be. Yes. This was a genuine person who had that happen. I mean, his yes. hardships. And, and when you consider not only the hardships of his labor, uh, but also as a military man. I mean, here he is working. He's, he's in the Virginia militia. He's, he's, he's there on behalf of the British Empire <laughs> yes. fighting against the French who, that, are, that are, you know, waging war on the western border of the United States. Mm-hmm. And he, he goes into, at age 22, he leads this, uh, this Lieutenant brigade. Colonel by age 22. Yeah. Which is just unheard of. You're right. Yeah. And he goes into this battle that, that to this day is still, you know, being debated of whether, you know, he, he attacked a, a diplomatic corps or whatever. Yes. But, um, it, it tarnished his military yes. history. It actually, he was shot at. He was, yes. he was, he lost a couple of soldiers. Um, and then he comes back, you know, <laughs> and, and, um, ultimately, you know, recants his allegiance to the crown. Yes. Which is phenomenal. Yes. 
I mean, if anybody knew what was at stake, n- not so much his livelihood, which of course it was, but his life mm. was definitely at stake mm. when he recanted uh, the crown and 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 became our our our, our leading general in the, yes. in the revolution. Yeah, and at age 22, as you said, that that kind of debacle. What's interesting uh, is that he signs a treaty in French, and he doesn't speak a word of French. Yes, right. Which I mean, I'm from Okeechobee. Can you imagine my French accent <laughs> would sound like? But he's in the backwoods of Virginia, and he yeah. doesn't speak a word of French, and he signs a treaty in French. And one thing we kind of laugh at as historians is one of the clauses is he had to actually give up his fifes and his drums, which was a sign yeah. of huge dishonor, right? Like his men were really ticked at him about this. They had to give their drums up. Like he didn't do that in right. battle. Um, and then another thing in that clause is he actually admitted guilt based to the death of this this premier, of course, diplomat, which is one of the things that led yes. to the French and Indian War. So in some ways, he kind of led to the to the, to the the magnitude of this war. Yes, almost a while world fighting war. Into it. Yes, in many ways. I mean, you have Europe <laughs> and, and the North America fighting in this war together for the first time. And in some ways, George Washington had a hand of responsibility in that. Yeah, almost you know, <laughs> lit the powder keg that yes. started the whole thing. Yes. And, and going back to his youth, though, when, when he was age 14, he writes The Rules of Civility. Yes, you know, a hundred, a hundred rules of civility. Someone that says, "Show, show nothing to your friend that might affright him." Mm. You know, in the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. You know, it, it's it's almost <laughs> like here's a fourteen year old who's self educated teaching etiquette. That's good. You know, and That's and, good. And, and, and and under the guise of the rules of civility, this man knew his destiny, in my opinion. I like that. As a leader. I like that. And and not exactly where it was going to be, but I think he knew it enough to know that he had to be prepared for whatever mm. may uh, confront him. And he saw greatness in himself. He, he did. But in doing so, he did it with such great humility. That's right. And that was experienced throughout his entire time as president. Yes. You know, he, he, he was humble as a, as a general, but he was strict as, I mean, he Hung. Yes. He hung some of his soldiers, yes. you know. Uh, I mean, yes. you know, when they were at Valley Forge, it was a terrible time oh. uh, for, for our country. It was a terrible time for those soldiers. But as a result of that, and von Steuben, his work in, in uh, uh, disciplining those and training those mm. soldiers made all the difference. Yes, absolutely. They, warfare at this time was such uh, pageantry and honor-based, and then his men kind of get this grueling experience through Valley Forge that shaped them very differently than their European counterparts, right? Yes. Like, they're, when they come out of Valley Forge, his troops look incredibly different than maybe more of the posh troops coming from England, um, and then, of course, their counterparts from France with Lafayette helping them. Right. They look very different. Um, they're a little ragtag, right? They're, they yeah. are kind of the, the backwoods Okeechobee or, the, you know, the backwoods West, West Virginia You're type right. of soldier, but that may be one of the major reasons why the war went the way it did being fought in the back country. Oh, I, I agree because you know the, the rules of engagement were different back then, oh, yes. and, and the rules of battle were a lot more formal. Yeah, uh, and I think that 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 George Washington took advantage of surprise attacks, took advantage of guerrilla warfare yes. that uh, was not common to the British uh, troops to, to witness, and, and and it caught them off guard. But then. You know, all things are fair in love and war. (laughs) (laughs) I want to back up to something you said about his humility, and I want to touch on this for a minute. So as you well know, Washington did not want to be president. That's right? true. Like he didn't want this. And I thought about this and there's this really famous quote by Plato as he writes in the Republic. And he said, only those who do not seek power are qualified to hold it. (laughs) Now, with that in mind, he writes a letter to Martha. So this is, this is of course, uh, General George Washington. At this point, he's now being promoted to the lead rank of commander-in-chief over the entire military. Uh, and he makes this statement. I am now set down to write you on a subject which fills me with inexpressible concern. 
And this concern is greatly aggravated and increased when I reflect on the uneasiness I know it will give you. It has been determined in Congress that the whole army raised for the defense of the American cause will be put under my care and that it is necessary for me to proceed immediately to Boston to take upon me the command of it. You may believe me, my dear Patsy, that was his nickname for, for Martha, when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from me seeking this appointment, I've used every endeavor in my power to avoid it, not only from my unwillingness to part with you and the family, but from a conscience of it being a trust too great for my capacity. The humility here, he's saying, I don't want the command. I don't right. want the lead. And when Plato said that only those who don't want power really qualified to hold it. Now, here's my question from someone who spent a lot of time in Congress. How do we apply this in the American democratic system when we have individuals running for power? How do we seek the individuals who don't want power when it seems like most individuals are self-aggrandizing to take power so they may be the least qualified in order to have power? Does that make sense? Like, it makes great sense, and I think we're doing it a, a total disservice to those genuine leaders that are out there that we could enlist, that we could recruit, who could take us to where our nation needs to be by just encouraging mm. that type of leadership instead of denigrating that type of leadership. Mm. We put so much focus on celebrity status and put no focus on statesmanship status. I like that. And as a result of that, I think we are passing up on opportunities of nurturing, cultivating, and, and, and encouraging leaders. And, and, and I think that the more we could, we could show about the characteristics of George Washington and, and have, you know, people live up to those, encouraged yes. to live up to those, recognized for those, whether it be in grade school, high school, college, business or whatever, and, and, and to say as a community, we seek humble, genuine leaders, Good. not just to, to, to blame somebody, but actually to take us to where we need to be. And, and I find that today it, it very disconcerting because there are people out there, uh, Caleb, that, that, that seek the, the, the authority that a title gives them mm. uh, for the sake of the title and not for the trust of the people that give them that title. Yes. And I think that's where George Washington basically said, wow, I don't <laughs> know. I, I think he knew how much was at stake, not only in the revolution, when you declare your independence from a country upon whom you have been totally dependent, you, you're, 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 you, like you said, he was a very wealthy man. Yes. He was a wealthy man not just because he was an American farmer, but because his customer, his his exports, you know, he was utilizing, yes. you know, Europe. It, you cut that off and you become an independent nation, or at least an attempt to be an independent nation, you lose your entire livelihood. Yes. I mean, that's at stake. So he knew that this isn't what he wanted. But he also knew that if he could attain it, he could make it better. And I think that's where he was challenged from within is I'm okay keeping everything like it is. But if it is the will of the people to move on, then I am willing to put mine at risk to do what they Absolutely. They, they, they seek to do. He, what I'm hearing you say is he put principles above profit. Absolutely. And when was the last time we really well, saw and, that coming out of D.C.? And, and, and when was the last time we, we demanded that, though? That's good. You know, as, as, as consumers, what I call voters, when are we demanding genuine leadership? Yes. You know, uh, it's easy to campaign on promises. It's hard to govern yes. on the commitments you made. Well, I believe, it was, I, I believe it was you I heard speak one time. He made the statement that Congress is a microcosm of society. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's, we, are, we are, and that's why we're dysfunctional. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Congress is dysfunctional. America is dysfunctional. Yes, but... we get the leaders we deserve and that are like us. We vote in people. It's representative government. We vote in people who are like You're us. absolutely right, Kevin. So maybe Washington was the quintessential man of the American Revolution. He was what was most like them. And maybe what we are seeing in D.C. today is people who are most like our society, which is a scary thought. 
Well, when you look at the fact that this was the first president that who re, who re, who rejected being called king. Yes. He was not going to be an emperor. That's right. You know, he he did not want that title. That's right. And what's more important, what I think is so impressive, uh, is that he only served two terms. Yes. And and, and the way he did that. Yes. Uh, I think really accentuated not only his humility but his belief that there would be other leaders after him that yes. would be even better. Yes. And to give them that opportunity. Yes. We don't nurture that. I mean, we have term limits in certain areas and things of that nature, but but you know, it, this shouldn't be a career. Mm. It should be what I think is an is is a, a vocation to go and do, and then go back to do your career. I like that. Um, and, and which and, was the idea of the founding fathers? That was the whole absolutely, concept. Absolutely, absolutely. Government yes. and and uh, you know. When when you talk about his his farewell address, we I'm, I don't mean to be moving too fast, but no, you're good. You know when when he when he warns us about political parties, about mm. factions. You had the Hamiltonian 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 Federalists and the Jeffersonian Amphite Federalists, yes. and 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 they split up. And of course, that led us to where we are today in a two party system. Mm. Uh, no one party has a monopoly on ideas, and I That's think true. he re- he recognized that. Yes, and he, he was bipartisan in many he ways. He was very bipartisan. I mean, I, technically, he was a federalist. But in many ways, he was. I think Hamilton kind of pushed him into being a federalist, right? Yes. I mean, he really did because Hamilton's kind of his golden-haired child, right? He's got this really good friendship with Hamilton, and Hamilton was pushy. I mean, Hamilton was pushy, but he Hamilton was pushy. cuts the deal for 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 having Washington D.C. created. True. And 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 Washington wants to be there. Yes. He wants to be in Virginia. Yes. He wants to be. And Hamilton's a, like a Scottish immigrant. He's scrappy, right? Yes. Like he's trying to prove himself to these like rich Virginia planters. He's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Oh, he does. Uh, he definitely does, right? And one thing I find interesting when you talked about the humility again of Washington is that Hamilton actually was very angry that Washington wouldn't take a higher title. And he still wanted yes. to be called Your Excellency. And Washington was finally like, no, just call me Mr. President. And of course, as you know, that's stuck to this day. You know, POTUS, yep. Mr. President, that's still around. That was because of Washington. He refused to be called Your Excellency, Your Grace, any of these other European titles. It was unheard of to have a leader of a country just be Mr. President, right? You're right. That was unheard of. You're right. But his humility. And and imagine when he he is overwhelmingly elected as president by Congress because that's yes. the way we elected our mm-hmm. president back then. There is no Washington D.C. That's right. They meet at at, at uh, in, in in the Federal Hall in in New York City. Mm-hmm. They have first of all, we don't even have any amendments to the Constitution. We have right. the Constitution, and here's a guy who Which comes barely in as president. Barely, <laughs> barely you're right. Passed. You're right. Yes. Uh, and and here he is. Moving and Martha did not want to go to no. New York. No, he moves into New York. Congress took forever. To, the first Congress, it took forever one to find members of Congress mm-hmm. because not everyone wanted to do it, and then few of them ever wanted to travel to New York. But when mm-hmm. they finally assemble, here he is. What what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's where uh, Madison, I think, comes up with the the, uh, the first twelve amendments, which yes. were it turned out to be the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. <laughs> uh, but he has no he has no game plan. He has no True. no template to follow. Mm-hmm. And and uh, John Adams is is uh, his vice president. And I think John Adams said at the time the most useless job in the world was being vice president because <laughs> all he did was sit over in the uh, the, the Senate chamber presiding over that. Um, has anything changed? No, you're right. I mean, you're just, right. You're right. You know, kinda, that's chief it's, ambassador, right? Is that exactly in many ways? Yeah, a very ministerial yes, job. Yes. But I mean, when you look back at him, and a guy who. He, you wonder why they didn't have children. You know, yes. was it was it yes. was it just providence in its own right? Yes. Uh, uh, was it what was it? And and history will speculate on that forever. But mm-hmm. his legacy w- was just just phenomenal. Yes. And I don't think we do enough to recognize Agreed. that. You know, uh, he he 
he loved his animals. I, I, we toured um, Mount Vernon several times when I was in Congress. We'd take people there. And one thing that always stood in my mind was that there was always a camel there because yes. he made friends with his friends in the Mideast. I think yes. it was in Egypt. And mm-hmm. they sent him a camel. Yes. And he loved his camel. Yes. And they still have a camel on the ground yes. at Mount Vernon. Yes. Just phenomenal. Which, talking about this, he was very agriculturally minded. Yes. Right? Very much so. So he was self-taught, which was kind of always a um, an issue with him. He always felt inferior because of his lack yes. of education. All of his siblings were trained in England, which was... You're right. Time of the, and he wasn't, right? He spoke no French. He only left the country one time. He lose to Trinidad. It was somewhere in the Caribbean. He left one time the country. Oh. He's never really traveled. So he, he kind of views himself this way. But he amassed this massive library. I think it was like 1,200 books. It's in Mount Vernon, something yeah. of that nature. But if you look at the titles, a lot of them are agricultural. And a lot of them are like um, on military campaigns in the art of war. He really... I guess in academics, we always use the term white-collar academian or blue-collar academian, right? He was a blue-collar academian, right? He, yes, he, he wasn't, was. He wasn't studying literature. Um, he was a guy's guy. He I was mean, he a was, guy's he, guy. He, he, was, he hunted. Yeah. He did martial arts. So back in these days, there was an, an early martial art that was called elbow and cuff, and it's like early judo. And he actually participated in elbow and cuff. Wow. And there's some early writings about when he would ride in on these troops, and some of this isn't always verified. So it's hard like to, to teach. And But he'd ride in these troops, and there's one story, one legend about him, and he rides in these troops, and there's some rowdy and Listed men, and he dismounts his horse. Now he's six two to six four, right? Yeah. Which was huge back then, about one eighty to two hundred. So he's a massive man. Dismounts his horse. He walks in the middle. He grabs the guy who's instigating it by the throat. So the story says, lifts him off his feet. And he looks in his eyes and he basically tells him to calm down and throws him down. <laughs> and the story says after the whole like the whole troops just begin to like you know simmer down. So not only is he the statesman, not only is he these rules of civility, but he could he could be brutal. Yes, when need be, he, he was, was strength under control, which is amazing in many ways, right? He was he was meek. <laughs> he was strength under control, um, and I liked when you talked about civility. And I want to go back to that as, as you talk about his rules of civility. This wasn't just simply something he had as in, in mind as a 14-year-old boy. He actually carries this through throughout his military yes, campaigns. Um, and one of the things, he'll write a letter to Thomas Gage. Of course, Thomas Gage oh, is, yeah. is a military general of the British. Um, and basically, it's this amazing letter. He writes it basically criticizing Gage and the British for their treatment of American officers that have been captured. And he ends the letter talking about the fact basically like the ball is in your court, but however you treat our men is how we're going to treat your men. But what I prefer to do is to show civility. And then I love this part because I, wow. I really like this in his second letter. I purposely avoided all political discussion. I will now avail myself to the advantages which are the sacred cause of my country and liberty and human nature. Much less I shall stop to retort and incite. And he goes on, and I won't get into this because it's like some really heavy 1700s language. But he goes on to basically say, you may be on the right cause. I may be on the right cause. Who really knows? God will sort this out, right? The hand of providence will sort this out. But we're both fighting for what we believe in. So let's just show some civility through this. And you read that, it's kind of unheard of. Like in modern warfare, modern combat, when do we ride across, like, well, when would we write to Putin and be like, hey, let's be civil through this? Yeah, I sure ride. Right? Let's be gentlemen through this conflict. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, it was. He, he, uh, he was very objective in the way he dealt with things, but he was also very determined. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that still is, is in, in debate today was his foreign policy. He believed, mm. you know, the United States should be isolationist. Absolutely. No alliances. No alliances. Stay, no out, alliances. Of, stay out of foreign affairs. Yes. Uh, I don't know how that, I don't know how that would have worked for us over time. Yes. I think that, that, that we, I, I, you know, when you look at Woodrow Wilson, who didn't want to go mm. into World War One, yes. you looked even at Franklin Roosevelt, who didn't want us to go into World War Two. We tried to maintain, but, but we're eventually brought in. Mm. And, 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 and I don't know how he would react, you know, to what point, you know, do you 
get engaged and at what point do you exit that yes, engagement? Yes, that's good. Because, you know, at the time, the British Empire was everywhere. Mm. And so I think he was concerned that, that, that to have such a large empire, that to be a conqueror, to be imperialistic as the, as, as the Britain was at the time, they just could not sustain it over time. I mean, sure. history has shown that no, no, you know, the Roman Empire didn't sustain itself. True. So maybe he just thought that the more we were self-sufficient, the better off we would be in terms of longevity as, mm-hmm. a, as a democracy. But I, I wonder today, you know, especially when we deal with Ukraine, yes. you know, should we be involved in foreign affairs? Mm. Uh, I don't think we can escape it in today's world. I don't think that this president, that the, the, the president of Washington at the time, had any idea of the advancement of technology. The globalization of the world. Exactly. Absolutely. And we are, you know, we've got a global economy. Yes. Uh, when the wall went down in 89, <laughs> things changed dramatically. Yes. And um, you can't help but be, I think, engaged yes. or involved. And, and isolationism is not, I just don't think is a reality under any circumstance. I completely agree with you. Because one thing, when I always teach through American uh, history, too, in my class, is we look at the 1930s, which America came out of War One, right? And they're, yeah. they're shell-shocked. Um, they don't want to go to war ever again. And they start the, as you know, they start the national policy of appeasement. Mm-hmm. We'll let anything go. And through the 1930s, you have the rise of Hitler. You have the rise of Mussolini. You have the rise of the Japanese Imperial yep. Army. Yep. The world changes because the West says we're not going to get involved in any conflicts. So the question is, had we stayed out of conflicts and remained isolationists, would they have blown over on their own? Or were we really forced in in the 40s to really correct things? And had we corrected things in the 30s, would it never have gotten as bad? Would there have been no Auschwitz? Would there have been no concentration camps, no no Holocaust? Had we gotten involved sooner, would it have prevented that? So it it is. And how would Washington have handled that if he was that man in that time? Yeah, I think that would be a very difficult thing to handle. You know, politically, it's good to just take care of yourself and not worry about others. But at some point in time, uh, it may creep up on your shores and then it may be too late. And I think that's where that balance has to really be negotiated well. But that takes leadership, you know. Yes. Uh, And I I think, unfortunately, we haven't negotiated well in many of our uh, global skirmishes that we've been engaged in. That is so true. And, and, you know, we're still operating under an authorization of use of military force in in Afghanistan and and, uh, with regard to uh, uh, our invasion of Afghanistan, you know, and and we're out of there. But we still have on the books the authorization of use of military force. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, because, of course, your time in Congress, the last time Congress officially declared war was World War II. Correct. So a lot of the assets we're working on are actually from provision from World War II from the 1940s. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And and under the Presidential Powers Act, when, you know, the the president now can send troops to a foreign nation, but then within 90 days must report to Congress as to what the national interest is that he was going and willing to protect. You know, you look at back in, I mean, here's a president, George Washington, (laughs) who had no cabinet. Yes. He had, had, there was no bureaucracy. Yes. He had a Congress that wasn't sure why they were there, (laughs) you know, and and he takes them. He's the only president never to have lived in the White House. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and yet he built a foundation upon which we've seen no greater experiment in democracy than, than what we have here in America. Agreed. And, you know, and, and we can talk about his, his slaveholder. Yes, he was a slaveholder. Mm. No question about it. I mean, the man did not. He, these weren't saints. These right. were people of the period That's that right. were, 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 were new. And in fact, upon his death... He, he relinquished his slaves mm-hmm. and, and, and those, but, but they couldn't become totally free until Martha passed away. Yes. Um, now, that's like, oh, well, that's really nice. Why didn't you do it earlier? Well, you know, 
That'll always be debatable too, yes. why he didn't do it earlier. But my point is, is that we've come so far. Mm. He knew slavery wasn't right, but That's he right. also knew what it was going to take to hold together a nation. Mm. And, 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 and with belief and hope that the system would itself allow for the, the, the self-correcting of a lot of the, 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 the problems that we had, whether it be slavery, involuntary servitude, uh, you know, whatever. And that has been the beauty of our system. You know, yes. this is the same constitution, essentially, that we have today that existed back then. Yes. Utilizing that constitution, we've been able to overcome a lot, a whole lot, <laughs> with a whole lot more to go. But my point is, is I think this president, President Washington, knew that the groundwork could be laid so long as there were leaders who would utilize the groundwork for the purpose for which it was intended, yes. and that was to become a more perfect union, yes. established so clearly in the preamble. I like what you said, and one of the things I always tell my history students in regards to slavery, these issues that pass, is history is descriptive. It's not always prescriptive. Absolutely. Right? And this is where I think my complaint is at times when individuals are like, hey, let's not teach history anymore. We need to teach history because it's descriptive. We're describing what happened. We're not prescribing to do it again. No. In fact, as we describe it, hopefully it makes you sick in your stomach and you're, that's wrong. And that gut reaction keeps it from happening that's again. Right. If we sweep it under the rug and we forget about it, there is more likely a chance for these atrocities to take place again than confronting it in the light. It's a descriptive issue. It's not a prescriptive issue. Absolutely. And it's really important to understand. I think that's why history is so important to teach in schools today. Think of your children, at least in my case. You know, I try to teach my children to learn from my mistakes. So I'm very open about them. Why? So they don't have to go through the same Absolutely. thing. They don't have to learn from them. And, and, and that's why we should look at history. Look, we made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. Yes. But to ignore them only causes us to more likely create them again or Absolutely. experience them again. And, and, you know, again, if we take a person like George Washington and look at his demeanor, his his character, his leadership, we should be creating these models mm. for people to aspire to if we want to see this nation better. The issues are pretty much the same. <laughs> I mean, we, we always have the issues of, 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 of security from foreign nations. We always have the issues of, of commerce being up or down. We have the issues of racism. We have all these issues. These issues will perpetuate themselves throughout the history of our nation. But how we address them has to come from within and yes. building the right leaders to bring consensus and not polarization. Yes. George Washington knew about building consensus. Agreed. And that's something we're missing today so desperately in, in our political system. And it's, it's compromise is not a bad word. <laughs> that's right. Uh, you know, if they look at how the, the Constitutional Convention transpired in 1787, I mean, it was, in fact, there is right. the, they talk about the great compromise yes. that created our system of government, our yes. bicameral government. That's okay. And... And that's why I think we look at George Washington as much more than just a great leader. He was a tremendous role model yes. as an American. And I think that's a perfect point to pivot to his religion, to his faith, because this yes. is something that's very discounted by modern scholars. They'll say uh, Washington was simply a fatalist, or they use the term a lot, deist. They'll say Washington yes. was a deist. Well, we need to understand what a deist was in the 1700s versus a deist today, right? We can use the term deist. A deist was someone who, who understood who God was, that God was sovereign in the affairs of man, that God was providential right. in everything that he did. Uh, in many ways, Washington saw the invisible hand of God, as he would call it. Now, not Adam, Adam Smith's invisible hand, right, the economy, but he would saw God's invisible hand move moving through the affairs of men. And it is it permeates his writings. Also, Washington was a student of the Old Testament. He loved the writings of the Old Testament, specifically the, the prophet Micah. He'll spend a ton of time in his writings to the prophet Micah. And, and one of the things I find really interesting is that when he, he finally dies, uh, he asks for something he put on his coffin. It was put in Latin, and, and again, I won't subject you to my Okeechobee accent <laughs> trying to pronounce Latin, right? So the English translation was simply this. This was put on his, his coffin. 
Rise to judgment, glory to God. Wow. That's powerful. Inter- right? Is it? And, and, and that dichotomy, like I'm rising to stand before judgment, before holy God, but still glory be to God. Yeah. It's really, really interesting the way he does that. His, his life verse was Micah 6, 8. Oh man, God has shown you what he wow. requires to walk justly, to walk humbly, to love justice, seek mercy. Like the, this was the, the way that, that Washington conducted himself in his affairs. So do you want to talk a little about his faith at, at all? I want to touch on that about the fact that he was a man of faith. Oh, he was a man of faith. And if you've ever been to Williamsburg, Virginia, and you see the old town, they have the, 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 the church there that, that he used to attend back uh, when that was in the, 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 the capital. Uh, he was definitely a man of faith. And he spoke of providence often. He wrote of providence yes. often. And I think he knew, he knew enough to know that he wasn't the last word on what religion a person should Good. be, but I think he knew enough to know that there was a. I mean, you had Quakers back then. You had a. Mm. You had a, a great mix. Uh, uh, Hay and Solomon. Hay and Solomon yes. was a a, uh, a Jewish financier that yes. w- that was close to George Washington. Yes. That without of which he would not be able to pay his troops because Hay and Solomon went out and raised the money to That's pay right. the troops. That's right. I mean, so George Washington knew the diversity yes. of religion and the need for religious freedom in the United States. So he didn't wear it on his shoulder no. as one denomination. Nomination, right. but he acknowledged the providence of God in everything he did, including in his writings. And I think, you know, you could draw your own conclusion, but I don't see how you can't come to the conclusion that he was a very religious man. Agreed. And of course, he writes the very famous letter to the Hebrew congregation. I believe it's yes. Newport. Is it Newport he writes those? Yes. And, and he, he is a friend to the Jewish population, which has been so persecuted in Europe at this time. And they come to America, they come to the colonies, and Washington writes, and he uses, that, again, that famous uh, imagery from Micah about the fact that every man needs to be successful, centered his own fig tree, is under his own vine. He uses that imagery from the Old Testament. And basically here in America, you're going to be welcome, you're going to be free to exercise your religion, whatever that may be. And that was that was revolutionary at the time. It was. It really, really was. So today we've been talking about, really, uh, we talked the revolution, the trinity of the revolution. So we talked about the pen of the revolution, Jefferson. Yes. We talked about the tongue of the revolution, Patrick Henry. And we talked the sword of the revolution, George, George Washington. Washington. So today we've been talking about the sword of the revolution, George Washington. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you.